Part Three, Chapter Nine of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. On the day following the review, Boris, dressed in his best uniform and accompanied by the wishes of his comrade Berg for his success, rode off to Olmutz to find Bolkonsky, anxious to take advantage of his good will and secure a most brilliant position especially the position of adjutant to some important personage, as this seemed to him the most attractive branch of the service. It's fine for Rostov, whose father sends him ten thousand at a time, to argue that he would not accept favors of anyone, or be anyone's lackey, but I, who have nothing except my brains, must pursue my career and not miss opportunities, but take advantage of them. He did not find Prince Andrei in Omuts that day, but the sight of the town where the imperial headquarters were situated, where the diplomatic corps were established, and both emperors were quartered with their suites and courtiers and intimates, only expired the more desire in the young man's heart to belong to this exalted world. He had no acquaintances, and, notwithstanding his elegant uniform of the guards, all these superior people crowding the streets in handsome equipages, plumes, ribbons, and orders, these courtiers and warriors seemed to stand so immeasurably above him that not only would they not, but they could not recognize the existence of such an insignificant officer of the guards as he was. At the establishment of the commander-in-chief, Kutuzov, where he inquired for Bolkonsky, all the adjutants and even the servants looked at him as though it were their wish to inspire him with the idea that there was a great abundance of officers like him there, and that all were very much annoyed by their presence. In spite of this, or rather in direct consequence of this, on the very next day, the 27th, immediately after dinner, he went to Olmutz again, and going to the house occupied by Kutuzov, inquired for Bolkonsky. Prince Andrei was at home, and Boris was ushered into a great drawing-room, where probably in times gone by, balls had been given, but which was now occupied by five beds and a heterogeneous melody of furniture, tables, chairs, and a harpsichord. One adjutant, in a Persian smoking-jacket, was sitting at a table near the door and writing. Another, the stout and handsome Nesvitsky, lay on his bed with his hands supporting his head, and laughing and talking with an officer who was sitting near him. A third was at the harpsichord playing a Viennese waltz. A fourth leaned on the harpsichord and was humming the air. Volkonsky was not in the room. Not one of these gentlemen, though they glanced at Boris, paid him the slightest attention. The one who was writing, and whom Boris ventured to address, turned round with an air of annoyance, and told him that Bolkonsky was on duty, and that he would find him by passing through the door on the left, and going to the reception-room if he wanted to see him. Boris thanked him, and went to the reception-room. He found there ten or a dozen generals and their officers. At the moment that Boris came in, Prince Andrei, with a contemptuous frown on his face, and that peculiar look of well-bred weariness which says louder than words that— if it were not my duty, I should not think of wasting any more time talking with you, was listening to an old Russian general with orders on his breast, who was standing upright, almost on his tiptoes, and, with a servile expression characteristic of the military on his purple face, was laying his case before Prince Andrei. "'Very good. Be kind enough to have patience,' he was saying to the general in Russian, but with that French accent which he affected when he wished to speak rather scornfully." Then, catching sight of Boris, and making no further reply to the general, who hastened after him with his petition, 
begging him to let him say just one thing more, Prince Andrei, with a radiant smile and waving his hand to him, went to meet Boris. Boris at this instant clearly understood what he had suspected before, that in the army there was, above and beyond the fact of subordination and discipline as laid down in the code, and which they in the regiments knew by heart, and which he knew as well as anyone else, there was another still more essential form of subordination, one which compelled this anxious general with the purple face to bide his time respectfully, while Captain Prince Andrei, for his own satisfaction, found it more interesting to talk with Ensign Drubetskoye. More than ever, Boris decided henceforth not to act in accordance with the written law, but with this unwritten code. He now felt that merely through the fact of having been sent to Prince Andrei with a letter of recommendation, he was allowed to take precedence of this old general, who in other circumstances, at the front, for instance, might utterly humiliate him, a mere ensign of the guards. Prince Andrei came to meet him and gave him his hand. "'Very sorry that you missed me yesterday. I spent the whole day with the Germans. Went with Weirother to inspect the disposition of the troops. What fellows these Germans are for accuracy! There's no end to it!' Bor smiled exactly as though he understood to what Prince Andrei referred. He affected to see in it a piece of generally known information, but really this was the first time that he had heard Weirother's name— and even the word dispositia. "'Well, now, my dear, so you would still like to become an adjutant, would you? I was just thinking about you.' "'Yes,' replied Boris, in spite of himself, reddening at the very thought. "'I was thinking of calling upon the commander-in-chief. He has had a letter in regard to me from Prince Kurigan. I wanted to ask it,' he added, as though by way of apology, "'because I was afraid the guards would not take part in any action.' "'Very good.' "'Very good. We will talk it all over,' said Prince Andrei. "'Only let me finish up this gentleman's business, and I will be at your service.' While Prince Andrei went to report on the business of the purple-faced general, this general, evidently not sharing Boris's comprehension in regard to advantages of the unwritten code, glared so fiercely at the audacious young ensign who had interrupted his conversation with the adjutant that Boris grew uncomfortable.' He turned away and waited impatiently for Prince Andrei's return from the commander-in-chief's private room. "'Well, my dear fellow, as I said, I was just thinking of you,' said Prince Andrei, as they went into the big room where the harpsichord was. "'There is no use in your going to call on the commander-in-chief,' he went on to say. "'He will make you pleasant enough speeches. He will have you invited to dinner. That would not be so bad according to this other code,' thought Boris in his own mind. "'But nothing more would come of it.' If it did, there would soon be a whole battalion of us adjutants and orderlies. But I tell you what we'll do. I have a good friend who is general adjutant, and a splendid man, Prince Dolgorukov, and perhaps you may not know this, but it is a fact, that just now Kutuzov and his staff, and all of us, are of mighty little consequence. Everything at the present time is centred on the Emperor, so let us go to Dolgorukov. I have an errand to him anyway, and I have already spoken to him of you, so we will see whether he can't find the means of giving you a place on his own staff, or somewhere even nearer to the sun. Prince Andrei always showed great energy when he had the chance to lend a young man a hand and help him to worldly success. Under the cover of the assistance granted another, and which he would have been too proud to accept for himself, he came within the charmed circle which was the source of success, and in reality a powerful attraction for him. He very readily took Boris under his wing and went with him to Prince Dolgorukov. 
it was already quite late in the afternoon when they reached the palace of olmutz occupied by the emperors and their immediate followers on this very day there had been a council of war in which all the members of the hofkriegsrath and the two emperors had taken part in the council it had been decided contrary to the advice of the old generals kutuzov and schwarzenberg to act immediately on the offensive and offer bonaparte general battle the council had only just adjourned when prince andrei accompanied by boris entered the palace in search of prince dolgorukov already the magic impression of this war council which had resulted in victory for the younger party could be seen in the faces of all whom they met at headquarters the voices of the temporizers who advised further postponement of the attack had been so unanimously drowned out and their arguments confuted by such indubitable proofs of the advantage of immediate attack that the subject of their deliberations that is the impending engagement and the victory which would doubtless result from it seemed to be a thing of the past rather than of the future all advantages were on our side the enormous forces of the allies doubtless far outnumbering napoleon's forces were concentrated at one point the armies were inspired by the presence of the emperors and eager for action the strategical point where the battle was to be fought was known in its minutest details to the austrian general weirother who would take direction of the army it happened also by a fortunate coincidence that the austrian army had manoeuvred the previous year on the very plains where it now was proposed that they should meet the french in battle all the features of the ground were well known and accurately delineated on the maps and bonaparte evidently weakened was making no preparations to meet them Dogolikov, one of the most fiery partisans in favor of immediate attack had only just returned from the council weary and jaded but full of excitement and proud of the victory won prince andrei introduced the young officer whom he had taken under his protection but prince Dogolikov, though he politely and even warmly pressed his hand said nothing to him and being evidently unable to refrain from expressing the thoughts that occupied him at this time to the exclusion of everything else he turned to prince andrei and said in french well my dear fellow what a struggle we've been having may god only grant that the one which will result from it will be no less victorious one thing my dear fellow said he speaking eagerly and brusquely i must confess my injustice to these austrians and especially weirother what exactness and care for details what accurate knowledge of the localities what foresight for contingencies what thoughts for all the minutest details no my friend nothing more advantageous than the condition in which we find ourselves could possibly be imagined austrian accuracy and russian valor combined what more could you desire so an engagement has actually been determined upon asked Belkonsky. and do you know my dear it seems to me that really bonaparte has lost his latin do you know a letter was received from him to-day addressed to the emperor dolgorukov smiled significantly what's that what did he write asked Bolkonsky. what could he write tra and so forth merely for the sake of gaining time that's all i tell you he's right in our hands that's certain but the most amusing thing of all said he with a good-natured smile was this that no one could think how it was best to address the reply to him not as counsel and still less as emperor of course i suppose it would be to general bonaparte but there is considerable difference between not recognizing him as emperor and addressing him as general bonaparte said bolkonsky that's the very point said dolgorukov interrupting him with a laugh and speaking rapidly you know bilibin 
he's a very clever man. He proposed to address him as usurper and enemy of the human race. Dolgorokov broke into a hearty peal of laughter. Was that all? remarked Bolkonsky. But in the end it was Bilibin who invented a serious title for the address. He's a shrewd and clever man. What was it? Head of the French government. A chef de gouvernement français, replied Prince Dolgorukov gravely and with satisfaction. Say, now, wasn't that good? Very good, but it won't please him much, replied Polkonsky. Oh, not at all. My brother knows him. He's dined with him more than once, with the present emperor at Paris, and told me that he never saw a more refined and cunning diplomat. French finesse combined with Italian astuteness, you know. You've heard the anecdotes about him and Count Markov, haven't you? Count Markov was the only man who could meet him on his own ground. You know the story of the handkerchief? It's charming. And the loquacious Dolgulikov, turning now to Boris, now to Prince Andrei, told how Bonaparte, wishing to test Markov, our ambassador, purposely dropped his handkerchief in front of him and stood looking at him, apparently expecting Markov to hand it to him, and how Markov instantly dropped his handkerchief beside Bonaparte's, and stooping down picked it up, leaving Bonaparte's where it lay. Charmant, exclaimed Polkonsky. But, Prince, I have come as a petitioner in behalf of this young man here. Do you know whether— But before Prince Andrei had time to finish— an adjutant came into the room with a summons for Prince Dolgorukov to go to the Emperor. "'Ah, what a nuisance!' exclaimed Dolgorukov, hurriedly rising and pressing Prince Andrei and Boris's hands. "'You know, I should be very glad to do all in my power either for you or for this charming young man.' Once more he pressed Boris's hand, with an expression of good-natured frankness and mercurial heedlessness. "'But we'll see about it. See you another time.' Boris was greatly excited by the thought of being so near to such exalted powers. He felt that here he was almost in contact with the springs which set in motion all these enormous masses of which he and his regiment appeared to be a small, humble, and insignificant part. They followed Prince Dolgorukov into the corridor. Just then, from out the door leading into the sovereign's apartment, through which Dolgorukov was going, came a short individual in civil attire with an intellectual face and a strongly pronounced and prominent lower jaw, which without disfiguring him lent a special energy and mobility to his expression. This short man nodded to Dolgorukov as to a friend, and came along straight toward Prince Andrei with a fixed cold stare, evidently expecting him to make a bow, or to stand out of the way from him. Prince Andrei did neither. A wrathful expression came into his face, and the young man, turning about, went down the corridor in the other direction. "'Who was that?' asked Boris. "'That is one of the most remarkable, and to me, most detestable of men, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Prince Adam Sartorinsky. "'Those are the men,' said Bolkonsky, with a sigh which he could not stifle, as they left the palace. "'Those are the men who decide the fate of nations.' On the next day the armies were set in motion, and Boris had no opportunities, until the Battle of Austerlitz itself— to meet either Prince Bolkonsky or Dolgorukov, and remained for the time being in his regiment. End of chapter 9